Oh, hey, I'm so glad that you found us. My name's Michael, and I get to be the pastor at Shepherd's Community United Methodist Church in Lakeland, Florida. You're listening to the It's Better When You're Here podcast, where every week we upload the messages that are preached at our church every Sunday. We hope by listening to this, uh, you feel safe, heard, and loved by the God that created you. We hope this message makes an impact in your life. If listening to this makes a difference, reach out to us and connect with us either on social media or on our website, shepherdsumc.com. All right, here's the message. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick. I've been friends with Michael for a long time. I work over at Florida Southern, and he asked me to share a bit this morning about something that I wrestle with often, about something that I think all of us from time to time encounter in our lives, and we don't know exactly what to do with it. Before we get into all that, I want to tell you a story. So my son is 12 years old. When he was about five or six, we lived in a small apartment across the street from First United Methodist Church, where I worked at the time. One of the things we used to do often is we would go walk downtown, because it was a couple blocks away. So we'd just get up, get out of our tiny apartment, go walk around, and go explore. He's very, very inquisitive, uh, very, very fun-loving, and he says hi to everyone, which can be good. Sometimes it's not so good. If you've ever spent any time downtown, particularly around Munn Park, you know, not so much now, but a couple years ago, um, the homeless were a real presence down in Munn Park. I don't like using the word the homeless were a problem because it's not a problem for me because I have a home. Um, But for them, it was a problem. So you would go downtown and you would see people sitting on all the benches, congregating in groups, and there was this weird dynamic of people who had and people who didn't have. And for the most part, people who had just acted like the people who didn't have were invisible. It's just the easiest way to deal with the homeless is to not look at them. If you've ever pulled up to a light and you saw a homeless person right outside your car, what do you do? You look straight forward. Well, that's typically the dynamic down there. And I, I think from having a relationship with some of the homeless down there, they prefer it that way. They don't want to feel like they're violating anyone's space. Um, they don't want to feel like they're a nuisance. So it's just easier to be ignored. Carter doesn't ignore anybody. So we would walk downtown, and Carter would just start to gear over towards the homeless, and we'd start to talk to him. Well, being a dad, I was a little leery of that, but I would just join him because I want him to care about people. Like, that's important to me, that when Carter sees somebody, no matter what type of background they come from, no matter what their skin color, no matter who they are, he sees them as like a human worthy of interacting with. So... We would go over, we would talk to them. And then one, one particular day before we headed out to the, um, the park, Carter says, hey, Dad, why don't we bring some food with us? And because I was talking to somebody last week, and I was standing right next to him during the conversation, and he asked him about where they got their food from. And the guy said to him, I'm not really sure. It just kind of appears from time to time. So Carter thought it would be a good idea for us to go get his favorite food, which is the 99-cent hamburgers from McDonald's. He would, the kid would just plow through them. He thought that was a great idea. It was cheap. I always told him, listen, I don't mind going out and getting that stuff for you because it's really inexpensive. It's easy. So I said, how many do you think we should get? And he, um, he just looked at me and said, how many do you think we should get? I was going to say a number like five or six. And he said, let's get 50. <laughs> 50 hamburgers from McDonald's. And I was like, oh, 50. Where'd you come up with the name the number 50 from, and he said, well, because we'll, we'll need extra when people here were handing out hamburgers. So he's five at the time. He's pretty perceptive. So we go to McDonald's, and I go through the drive-thru, and 
The person comes over and says, uh, Welcome to McDonald's. What will you be having today? And I said, uh, I'll have uh, 50 hamburgers. And the guy says, 15 hamburgers? I was like, no, no, no. 50 hamburgers. <laughs> and he paused and he goes, could you come in, please? <laughs> so I go into McDonald's. Um, they're like, it's going to take us a while to pull that together. People are standing in line looking at me like I'm a glutton. Carter's just smiling and waving at everyone. They get 50 hamburgers from us in like six different bags. There's grease pouring out the bottom. It's my car. Oh, my God. I didn't want to tell you what my car smelled like afterwards. So we go down the park. We start handing out these hamburgers. And Carter's handing them out to everyone. So, like, people that I know from church who have means, Carter's walking up to them and handing them hamburgers. People that I know that were downtown that are vegetarian, Carter's handing out hamburgers. Police officers, Carter's handing out hamburgers. But he wanted to keep a few bags for some of the homeless people that we would occasionally talk to. So he went over and was handing them bags, and I'm handing them out with them. And this lady comes up out of nowhere, and she, I guess she felt a need, like some people do, to make her um, opinion known to me about having my son and I hand out hamburgers. And she came up, and she said, right with Carter next to me, she came up and said, you know, um, teaching him to do that's going to put him in a bad way because it's, they're always going to want more. And then Carter stopped her before I could say anything, because I was going to say that very deferential. Well, thank you. You know, that's something to think about. I, I appreciate that. Would you like a hamburger? I'd even get to that point, because Carter said, well, we'll just get more food. And he just stared at her, like I would stare at him if he was in trouble. And she was like, okay. And she, she walked off and finished all, handing out all the hamburgers, and we get back into the car. And I was like, hey, buddy, how do you feel about doing this today. He was like, oh, that's, it was great. And he said this, he said, we solved their hunger problem. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, like we fed them 99 cent hamburgers. We didn't solve their hunger problem. But in his mind, he saw that there was an issue and he saw that there was an easy fix for the issue and he acted on it. And all I could think in the car was, man, I hope he forgets about this by the time we get to next Saturday because I can't be spending 50 bucks a week feeding everybody in downtown Lakeland. I just can't do it. Well, he didn't forget about it. He would tell his friends, and other friends would show up, and eventually it died out because my, um, my schedule with his mother changed. So, But even every now and then, Carter will just ask me, hey, do you want to go get some food and go downtown? And he doesn't mean go dining. He means let's go grab something and go feed someone. And the amazing thing about my son is that he's still what many of us would call um, naive. He doesn't quite understand the way the world works. And he sees like a direct line between the way the world is versus the way the world he thinks should be. And that direct line he sees is an action that usually involves him. Like he, he, very, rarely, he very rarely sees something that's wrong and thinks somebody else should fix it. It's just not who he is. I think most children are that way. Most children are very good about seeing what's broken, and having an idea about how to fix it, even if that idea is naive, or even if that idea doesn't have all the facts. And we would call that naive, and we would call that, um, some of us would call that ridiculous, but I think if you show me a naive person, whether or not they're young or they're not so young, you're not showing me a person who doesn't understand things. You're showing me a person who sees the world as it could be 
and wants it to get there. Now, we as adults lose that as we get older. We, rather than seeing the black and white of something that's broken and how we can fix it, we see all the issues in between what's broken and how it can be fixed, and we get derailed. Because usually those, those fixes involve time, energy, resources, those types of things. So what we do as adults is we say this, somebody should really do something about that. If I said that to my son Carter, he would look at me and be like, that's us. That's the way he thinks. Have you ever seen something in the world, and it doesn't matter what it is, it could be something profound and large, it could be something small, but it bothers you in such a way that you feel a need that you have to do something about it. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me occasionally, less and less. But you see something in the world that's broken. You see maybe an injustice or a suffering. You see some sense of how the world ought to be, and then you look at the way it is, and you're like, that, that can't be right. Now, for Carter, it was people who were hungry. But for you, it might be something different. Hopefully, it's something different. And it, it goes beyond complaining about things. I'm not talking about being irritated with something. How many of you have ever heard of an app called Nextdoor? Okay. I have the Nextdoor app. And the reason I downloaded it on my phone is it, basically whatever community you're in, it connects you with other people in that community that are on the app. And you're supposed to be friendly and, and talk about, hey, I have this need. Can you meet this need? Or, hey, I saw this. Maybe we can get together and make a better world. The whole app, though, is about people complaining about traffic noise or people complaining about the planes overhead or people complaining about this one suspicious person that walks down the road every day. And I, I kept the app because there was one particular time I was on there and I was kind of getting exasperated with the whole gripe environment because what I'm talking about this discontentment is not griping. It's not just talking about what's wrong. It's feeling compelled to do something about it. Well, there's this one person that's in the community that I'm in, and from what I can tell in my limited research, she has very few resources. She doesn't have a lot of money. I don't think she has a car. But I am telling you, I keep this app for no other reason than she is the most helpful person I've ever seen on social media. And she may not have a lot, but she gives a lot of what she has away to people who need it. She's constantly connecting people to resources and to avenues that people can, and it's everything you can think of. It's everything from childcare to I need a plumber to, you know what, I feel lonely and I need someone to talk to. This is a person who sees the world as it is and says, it shouldn't be this way. Like, I have something I can offer someone who needs help. You know, we talk about naive people and how sometimes naive people see the world as it is and as it should be, and they draw a straight line. If you've ever read the scriptures, Jesus, if you don't know him, comes off as very naive. If, if you recoil from that idea, go home this afternoon and read the Sermon on the Mount. There are two things in the Sermon on the Mount. There are things that make you uncomfortable because Jesus is asking you to do uncomfortable things. And there are things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that you're like, that's not the way it works. And that's the whole point. Jesus spent the entirety of his ministry and life here in this tension of what people call holy discontentment. He was so discontented at the way the world worked 
that he put on this meat suit and came here. That's the level of discontentment. Have you ever had somebody who volunteered to help you with something? Maybe it was a project you had, or it was something you were doing at your house, or maybe it's something like you're leading a VBS, and they want to come in and help you, but they won't do it the way you intended to do it. It is really hard just to sit back and let them go through it, isn't it? Especially if it's something you really care about. Now, imagine being the God of all creation, and you created us to love each other like we would want to be loved and to love God with everything we have. And then you watch it how the first couple thousand years of that unfolds. And your impulse is, that's not what I meant. That's not what I wanted for you. So what does God do? He comes here. And Jesus spends most of his time not telling people this Bible passage or saying, I will pray for you, but by meeting people where they are and meeting their needs in such a way that they will listen to what he has to say about their life. He doesn't drive by with scripture and be, oh, your, your dad just died. Here's a scripture that helps me. Oh, your kid doesn't have a ride to soccer practice this afternoon. I'll pray about that. Jesus didn't do that stuff. Jesus was unconcerned about entering into the messy, sticky world of issues. This passage that we read from Matthew 9, usually when you hear it in church, people are equating it to evangelism, that the harvest is souls and the workers are here to harvest the souls for the kingdom of God. If you read anything about Jesus in the New Testament, the vast majority of time when Jesus is talking about how believers interact with the world, he's not telling believers to convince people to believe in Jesus so that they make it to heaven. He spends almost the entirety of his message convincing people that say they believe in God to do something about bringing heaven to earth. That's what Jesus spends his time doing. So when Jesus is in this passage, and he's looking around, it says, when he saw the crowds, in verse 36, he had compassion on them. Some translations use the phrase, filled with compassion. And that word for compassion in the Greek means a stomach ache. It means to be moved, literally, like deep in the bowels. Like your stomach doubles over with cramps out of compassion. That, you, that Jesus is standing and looking at all these people, and in the preceding passages and chapters before this, he's healing people of blindness. He's, he's talking to people that no one else talks to and making them understand that they're not invisible. He's doing all sorts of things that meet people where they are, what the needs they have. And then he stands in front of all these people, and he looks out, and his stomach hurts because he cares about them. The harvest is plentiful. Look at all these people but the workers are few, but not enough people care. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Ask God to send people who care to help. Now, this is Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And there's almost a desperation when you read the scripture that Jesus is like, I need help. Sure, I can heal people. Sure, I'll save their souls, but you know what? You have a part to play in this. Holy discontentment is pretty easy to understand. And like I said, it goes beyond being irritated. Holy discontentment is seeing something in the world that is broken, the brokenness of the world, and it bothers you to the point where you know that you have to do something to help address it. Not solve it, but help address it. You have to be part of what makes it right. Put the world to rights, as N.T. Wright likes to say. It's not enough for you to have a fish on your car 
and to make sure you're listening to Chris Tomlin and that you go to church on Wednesdays and Sundays. For you, that's not enough with holy discontentment because outside of these walls, there is a world that is desperate to know that there's something better than what it has. So what does that mean? Holy discontentment is about, as a believer, you accept the notion that doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven means two things. What is the will of God? Jesus tells us. To love God with everything you are, to the best of your ability. What's the second part? To love your neighbor as you would like to be loved. Not as you have been loved, but as you would like to be loved. That your life, no matter what age you are, no matter what station you're in, your life is the intersection between God's love and a world needing to be loved. And too many Christians just stick with this vertical element. As long as I go to Bible study, as long as I give, as long as I do these things that check off a list, but you know what? When they go out into the world, that's not my problem. It doesn't affect me. You don't have the luxury of being unaffected by a broken world. That's not the way this works. I don't have that luxury. Christians do not have the luxury of somebody should really do something about that because that is not what was modeled for us with Jesus. So where are you likely to find areas of holy discontentment in your life? I'll tell you where you'll find them if you're open to looking for them. In the church, we often use the word calling. Okay, usually when you hear the word church and calling, what do you think? You think of a preacher on stage or a worship director. You think of somebody who's called to a vocational ministry. That's what calling is. But the reality is every single person sitting in here has a calling on their life. Now, a lot of times I'll sit with students, some here, that will talk about, I'm not, I know what my major is, but I'm not sure what to do with my life. Like, I know what, where I'm going to work, but I don't know what my calling is. And your calling is actually surprisingly uncomplicated, okay? So part of the calling of your life is God's will for your life, right? So it's to love God with who you are, what you do, as much of that capacity as you possibly can. Are you going to get that perfect? No. But your intent in your heart is to give that to God. The second part of it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how that unfolds with your calling. Each and every person in here has something they're passionate about, has something you're good at, has a resource that maybe you only have that no one else has. Whatever that thing is, and it can be anything, where that resource can help meet a need in the world that you see, that's your calling. I'll give you an example of one that seems inane, but is a big deal. I had a friend that used to work in the youth ministry I worked in, and he is a great guy. Um, he loved fishing. Like, loved it to an unhealthy level. Like, loved it to the point where the disciples would be like, we're fishers, but chill out, dude. Like, he loved it so much. He, he was constantly trying to get me to go out on a boat. I don't care about I grew up in a town that was 20 miles away from another town called No Trees in Texas. There was no water where I grew up, okay? No water. So I didn't care about fishing, but he was always trying to get me to go out on the boat, volunteer to go on a mission trip. We go on this mission trip 200 miles away in an urban center in Houston. Meets a group of kids from the inner city, develops a relationship with them, discovers, shockingly, that none of those kids have ever been fishing because it's the middle of Houston. So this was back in 2005. Every three months, because the guy had means, every three months, he would take a group of kids from that inner city on a fishing trip down Galveston for no other reason that they'd never been fishing. That's a calling. There was a girl in a church that I used to work at here in town, and she found out, she was 10 years old, she found out that people all around the world suffer from not having enough drinking water. 
Well, she wanted to raise money to do it. She couldn't find a way to do it. But one thing that she was very good at with her grandmother was sewing. So she started sewing these little birds, would stuff them and sell them at markets, go to churches, go talk about it at different places. So this 10-year-old girl in the course of two years raised $80,000 selling birds. I have another friend. He's got a landscape company. He's, he's pretty well set at this point. I just discovered, and I'm good friends with him. I was in his wedding, so I know this guy. I just discovered recently, for the last 10 years, on every second Saturday of the month, he goes around his community and landscapes and mows the lawns of people who cannot afford to have it done and who cannot do it themselves. Hours and hours of work. I have another friend. When I was in between insurance, this is a personal story. He found out, not from me, but from someone else, that my insurance had lapped when I was in between jobs that offered it. He found a way to pay for my medications, for my brain pills, every month for 18 months. That's $350 a month because he saw that I had a need and he just met it. There are people in churches who knit quilts so that people can experience comfort. There are people in churches, like First United Methodist Church, there's a group of old dudes that love doing construction work and repair work. They're called Tuesday Tigers. They go out in the community and do that. All these things started with people who saw something in the world that was broken and said, I can help with that. And then they did it. So what's your thing? You've got it. Or maybe you've got it and you sit back and you say something like, well, Rick, I don't, I don't really see what you're seeing. With all due respect, if you can function in this world and not see a broken thing that needs to be fixed, it's not because you don't see it. It's because you don't want to see it. Go out to this street and walk that way or that way. You're going to run into someone, something that needs the love of God. Divine discontentment is going to cost you time and money and resources. But there's another reason we do it. It's the last story and I'll shut up. I used to work at a very affluent church in um, South Lake, Texas. And the median salary in the town I lived in, the section of the town I lived in, like the average, was $275,000 a year. 20 years ago. So all my kids' parents had money. All my kids, we never had to do fundraisers. We never had to do any of that stuff. It was kind of embarrassing. But what we would do is we would find ways for students in other communities that weren't quite so wealthy to get involved with our program. Well, through that process, we found out that we had a mother in our ministry who was actually volunteering who desperately needed dental work, desperately. So much so that I found out about it and asked if I could meet with her. And she wouldn't meet with me just because she was so ashamed that her teeth had gotten to a bad place. She was like in her mid-20s. So there was a volunteer in our group named Jeff. Jeff had lots of money. Jeff had two houses. One was like in the Caribbean somewhere. Jeff had every car you could want. He was involved in our youth group because his kids went to our youth group and they liked me. So he was like, let's go check this out. Jeff was by all accounts, a really great human. He was funny. He was kind. He was willing to get involved with what we were doing. But Jeff had one thing that I never understood. Jeff would not help another human being if his life depended on it, if it came to resources. He just wouldn't do it. Like every time we would go out to lunch, he would tip. And I'm, I'm not joking. He would tip like two bucks on like a $50 tab. He was that guy. And he had lots of money. So if you have money, that's fine. I don't mind. I don't begrudge if you have money. If you're not willing to help people, I have an issue with that. So I thought, you know what? This is an opportunity for Jeff to step up. I'm going to see if he's willing to help out this mother with her dental needs. He's super affable, kind of laughs things off. So I was like, how hard do I push him on this? Because I don't want, 
a guy who gives a lot to our church to leave our church because I was mean to him because I'm going to have to explain that to our senior pastor. So Jeff and I go out. We actually used to go out for lunch all the time. He and I had a good relationship. And I said, Jeff, I know you don't like doing this, but and that's probably not how I should have started. I said, but there's a mother that volunteers, and he knew her. I don't know if you've seen her teeth, but she's struggling right now, and she doesn't have the resources to get her teeth taken care of. Here's the way I positioned it for him. I said, is there anything you could do or any resources or anyone you know that might be able to help her out pro bono work? Because she can't pay. And Jeff's eating his barbecue, and he looks up, and he's like, I don't do that. That's what he said. He went back to eating. I was like, Jeff, why are you so unwilling to help people? And it wasn't just this area. It was like every little area. Anybody, whoever needed anything that he had resources for, he wouldn't connect them. And this is what he said. He said, Rick, I grew up without money. And I knew that. And he said, I got to where I am, and nobody helped me. I remember growing up, and my parents needed help. Nobody helped them. I remember when I needed to go to college, I needed help with that. Nobody helped me with that. I remember in my marriage, I needed help figuring out how to be a good husband and a good dad. Nobody helped me. All the while, I know for a fact that lots of people offered help everywhere along the way. So he's spewing this out at me, and this is what he ends with. He goes, nobody ever helped me, and look how I turned out. And what he meant by that was, look at my house, look at my cars. By the way, he never, ever paid for lunch. Because he always asked, he never paid. So he's like, look at how I turned out. Sometimes people just have to make it on their own. And I honestly feel like this was God saying this through me. I said, Jeff, I understand what you're saying, but you turned out to be the type of person who will not help a needy mother. That's how you turned out. And he put down his fork. And he stared at me. He was like, what's that supposed to mean? I was like, I don't think I can make it any clearer than that. Well, Jeff paid for lunch that day. I thought it was just Jeff's way of saying, it's been nice knowing you. And I felt like I pushed him too hard. But a month later, I find out he had taken care of this woman's teeth. He was doing it incrementally over time. He still had equipment at his place because his place was gigantic. And now, now you know what Jeff does? Jeff travels on mission teams all around the world offering free dental work to people. You know what Jeff discovered at lunch? And it's not because I'm magical, because I'm not the magic money guy. Like, if you need money, don't come to me. I'm not going to find a way to get it for you. But it's just because I, I posed a question to him, and then I helped him to see one thing that's really important. Divine discontent is not just about charity. It's not even about doing your Christianly duty. It's not even about the feeling you get of helping someone who needs help. Divine discontentment is about who you follow and the type of person you're choosing to become. And when my friend Jeff saw what he had become, he didn't want that. So where's an area or a person or a place or a cause in your life right now that you can see that you have something to offer to? And why aren't you doing anything about it? It doesn't have to be huge. You don't have to start a nonprofit. It can be something as simple as Somebody needs a bill paid and you can pay it. Pay it. It could be something as simple as, you know what, this person needs a tutor. I was a math teacher. I'll give them free tutor. It can be anything along those lines. It can be something as simple as, I know how to work on cars and their car doesn't work. I promise you for that person, though, that will change their world. And for you, you'll become more fully into the person that you've been called to be. Because coming to church and going to Bible studies and singing worship songs isn't enough to make you feel your purpose in the way that you were intended to. The only thing that does that is serving other people, is meeting needs, is addressing the brokenness in the world. 
that you can be a part of fixing. All right, friends. I hope you heard something in today's message that made an impact in your life, helped you know that you're loved by God, and inspired you to do something about the gospel that is offered to you. Now receive this blessing as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.